Amen. Good evening, everyone. It's really a joy to be back with you tonight, and thank you for coming back. I got here early this evening. I was the only one in the sanctuary for uh, a while, and I was listening to the choir uh, rehearse, and I was so blessed. Uh, You have a wonderful choir, very talented choir, and uh, I love to hear the choir and Brother David. And having said that, I want to uh, make an appeal to you. Uh, On October the 14th, we'll be holding our annual Calhoun Baptist Association annual meeting at Golden Springs Baptist Church. Did you hear the date I said? October the 14th. And one of the features of that evening is a combined choir from uh, people from across the association, choir members from various choirs from across our association. And the choir will meet at 5.30, David, and um, that's time for organization and and going over the song or two that you'll be singing, and then you'll be uh, the featured music in the annual meeting. That's at Golan Springs on October the 14th. And um, I am the director of missions, and I will be looking for the Meadowbrook Baptist Church (laughs) choir on that night. Amen? I was expecting a little bit more excitement out of you about that uh, than I saw. Well, it's good to be here, and I'm, I'm, I, I don't get to, to preach series of sermons much anymore. In fact, um, last summer when I was here, I did a series of four messages on the same occasion, Brother John away for his two weeks and vacation and rest and R&R, and I'm glad he has that time, but... He invited me to come back this time and fill the pulpit for him and an opportunity to preach four sermons back to back. And that takes us to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And if you were here this morning, uh, I hope you will remember some of what was said. Uh, I know I talked too much, but I hope I did say something that uh, could be remembered and applied. We're picking up in this series of sermons four of the metaphors, the pictures of a Christian in chapter 2, but let's have a word of prayer, and I just want to, uh, again, uh, lay a little bit of groundwork and move forward in this great text tonight. Father, thank you very much for the privilege of uh, being in this pulpit tonight. Lord, it's an honor, and it's one that I do not take lightly, and I come to the Meadowbrook family, the Meadowbrook congregation tonight with a desire in my own heart that the Word of God would be conveyed in such a way that hearts would be encouraged and lives would be strengthened and Jesus would be glorified. And to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a a wonderful epistle, the epistle of Paul to Timothy, the second letter he wrote to Timothy. And I think it's important that we understand, if we're going to understand the impact of this letter, that was the last thing that Paul wrote to Timothy. Paul is soon to face death himself. He's in prison when he writes this letter. He, he knows that, that the guillotine, the shadow of the guillotine looms, looms over him. He knows time is short. But he's not so much concerned about the fact that he's going to be leaving as he is the fact that Timothy's going to be staying. And Timothy's going to be living in a world that is not Christian-friendly. He knows that he's going to be facing the trials and the tribulations and the resistance to the preaching and teaching of God's word. 
And Paul writes the letter to Timothy to encourage him. As I said this morning in chapter 2 and verse 1, when Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I see, as it were, a father gently holding his son's face in his hands so as to uh, disrupt any distraction so he can focus Uh, on the son and the son can focus on him and he says you therefore my son my son in the faith my son in the ministry these are important words that I'm going to speak to you that I'm writing to you please do not miss what I'm saying and in chapter 2 following this this introduction in the first verse of chapter 2, Paul begins to lay out a list of pictures of the kind of Christian that he wants Timothy to be and he wants all Christians to be. We see the primary metaphors, pictures of, I call it portraits of a Christian here, and the first one is the soldier we saw this morning in verse 3 and 4. And the soldier really is a picture of the victorious life. And, uh, and, and Paul gave Timothy the formula for that. Uh, and he said, you must endure hardship. Do not go into this matter of living for Christ, uh, this opportunity for living Christ, with any uh, delusion that it's going to be easy. You will face hardships. You will face resistance. You will face even the possibility of death. And then he says, secondly, you must not entangle yourself in the affairs of this world. You cannot be a victorious Christian with one foot in the world and one foot in your Christian faith. And this is what he's saying to Timothy. Be a good soldier. A good soldier endures hardship. A good soldier... Uh, separates himself from civilian life. We come tonight to the, to the athlete in verse 5. And the athlete is a picture of the winning life. If the soldier is the victorious life, then the athlete is the winning life. And, and, and Paul says one thing to the athlete. He said two to the soldier. Endure hardship and don't get entangled with this world. And to the athlete he said play by the rules. Play by the rules. So the athlete becomes a picture of a winning life and how to win. Then we will turn next Sunday morning to the third metaphor, which is the metaphor of the farmer in verse 6. And Paul picks up that picture, that metaphor, the farmer. Everyone knew what a farmer was, what a farmer did, and the nature of a farmer's life. And this becomes a picture of the fruitful life, the fruitful Christian life. So Paul has addressed the, the, the victorious life and the soldier, the winning life and the athlete, and the fruitful life and the farmer. Then we will also look at the worker next Sunday night in verse 15. And the worker is, it becomes a, a picture of the honorable life. In verse 15 it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And, and he's describing here an honor to life. You don't need to be ashamed. When you live for Christ, you do not need to be ashamed. It is an honor to live for him and to serve him. So do, don't be ashamed and rightly divide the word of truth. 
And if I could just add the other two that we're not going to be addressing, the vessel, which is found in verse 20 and 21, is a picture of an honorable life. In verse 20, it says, only vessels of gold and silver, uh, vessels of honor, some of honor, some of dishonor. So the vessel becomes a picture of honor, the honorable life. The worker, by the way, is the confident life. The vessel is the uh, honorable life. And then the servant is the last primary picture in this chapter. It's in verse 24 and 26. We see the servant, and the servant becomes a picture of the humble life. So what Paul is doing here, he's instilling in young Timothy traits that will see him through. Traits that will give him the, 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 the ability to, to live victoriously for Christ. To live a winning life. To live a fruitful life. And ladies and gentlemen, and especially these young people I'm so proud to see tonight, this morning, and again this evening. This, this, this letter from Paul to Timothy is a letter from Paul to us. For we live in similar times. We live in a similar world. And we, we have a desire to live successfully, if I could use that word. We, we want to be victorious Christians. Uh, there's too much mediocrity in our Christian lives today. There's too much mediocrity. God wants us to be exceptional. He wants us to be winners. He wants us to be victorious Christians. And he tells us how we can do that. So we've seen the soldier. Now we're going to turn our attention to this athlete. And I'm going to go through several passages. And I want to commend our technicians uh, for their work uh, every Sunday. But I noticed this morning the verses were going up when I would announce the text. And that, was, uh, that gave me a wonderful, happy feeling to know that you can look at the verses while I'm reading. When I was pastoring uh, we had that kind of system, and the verses just followed me because sometimes I go too fast for you to turn and catch up with me. But it was a good idea to write these um, verses down. The victorious life, the winning life, does not come to us easily. The, the victorious Christian life, the winning life, the fruitful life is not an inexpensive life. And tonight, I think we're going to be getting down into the, to, to uh, seeing some of the cost when we look at the athlete, the Olympian athlete. What it costs to be a winning Christian. That's the lesson that I think Paul is wanting us to see. That being the kind of Christian that God can use in unusual ways and, and great ways and ways that we desire to be used by Him does not come to us fortuitously. There, there, there's, there's a part that we play and the price we pay to be the kind of Christian God requires us to be. I want us to turn or look at least to the screen to 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24 through 27. I want to read these verses to you. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 20 through 24 to 27. We're talking about the athlete now. And I mentioned this morning that Paul, Paul used and employed the, the, the picture, the metaphor of the athlete uh, frequently. Here he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. 
and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. And here Paul is talking about shadow boxing. I'm not shadow boxing. I'm not just up for the purpose of exercising my arms. This is not shadow boxing. I have a real opponent. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. This is not just shadow boxing. It's not play acting. But I discipline my body. And I bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself become disqualified. A dacumos, one who has been put on the shelf, unqualified to be used by God for his glory. This is a a strong admonition from Paul. He says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And then he says right in the middle of that passage, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. You know, doing word studies and language studies, as those of you who are Bible teachers do, you pick apart words. And what does that mean? What does it really mean? What does it really mean to compete? What is the language that Paul is using? The language he's using here is a word which literally means to agonize, to agonize, to agonize. The language of this passage is rich. And he's saying that person who wants to win the goal, who wants to cross the finish line first, who wants to be a winning Christian will agonize in his efforts to do that. It is a word that conveys the idea of striving, putting forth extraordinary effort to get to the finish line, to be a winner. Now I had to ask myself when I was preparing this message, am I doing that? And I must ask you tonight, are you doing that? Are we just coasting along? Are we just kind of in the flow of things as the, as the twig is moved by the stream, floating down as the stream would go? Or are we involved in, a, in an effort that would be described as an agonizing effort? Paul said, I discipline my body I beat it black and blue. It's strong language. And when he picks up this metaphor of the athlete, he's doing that right here to Timothy. This, Paul, Timothy knew what Paul had in mind when he used these pictures, these metaphors. He understood what was underneath the surface. Be like an athlete. There's another passage I want us to see in Hebrews chapter 12 and the first two verses. And I know that uh, we're not sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some think Paul did, and that would be all right with me if he did. We'd, we accept it as part of the canon of inspired scripture, but we're not exactly sure who the author is. But it says the same thing Paul says in many other places. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, Therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and I'm slowing down because I still hear the rustling of the leaves, which is my favorite sound at church. The rust, let your fingers do the walking through the holy pages. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which 
so easily ensnares us and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand uh, of the throne of God. It's remarkable language. Let us lay aside every weight. When you study these passages of, and Pauline writing about uh, these sports uh, pictures and athletic metaphors, uh, you will read that many commentators feel that Paul had been in the Colosseums, that he had probably been an eyewitness to some of those Greek events, that he'd seen the runners. Now, some of you are athletic people, you're you're very knowledgeable of track and field events. And one thing that you're aware of, if you follow track and field events and if you follow the racing events, uh, you are aware that, uh, that a runner wears very little, very little, very light, uh, very light clothing. N- nothing, nothing that's going to be uh, any kind of impairment to speed or time or distraction. And, uh, and you say, well, sometimes when you're watching these events in person or on television, you might say, well, they're not wearing very much. Well, if you'd been in first century uh, Pauline times seeing the Greek runners, you'd have said they're not wearing very much <laughs> if they were wearing anything at all. Why? Because they did not want anything to impair them. I, I wonder, I wonder how it is that sometimes you and I as modern-day Christians think that we can run the race and win the race while we're carrying so much baggage in our lives. I'm talking about stuff that shouldn't be there, that sin which doth so easily beset us. Again, I say you can't live this life with one foot in the world and one foot in your faith. Lay aside every sin that does so easily beset us. There are three things now I'm going to say about the athlete and the, and the, the moments that remain. I'm going to talk about the victorious, I'm going to call it the victorious Christian. The athlete is a picture of the victorious Christian, the winning Christian. And the first thing I see is that this person, this kind of Christian requires exercise. You can only, you can only become a winning Christian by spiritual exercise, and we'll talk about that. And then... Secondly, you can only become a winning Christian by obeying the rules, by obeying the rules. And then you can thirdly become a winning Christian by exercising self-control. By exercise, number one, by obeying the rules, uh, number two, and by self-control, number three. So let's kind of see where we are on the chart when it comes to spiritual exercise. Where are we on the chart? When it comes to obeying the Word of God, the rule book, the playbook, the rule book, where are we when it comes to self-control and self-discipline? What does this mean? What does it mean to exercise in our spiritual lives? Well, there are many parallels in spiritual life to physical life. Uh, there are disciplines that if, if we want spiritual muscles, if we want spiritual strength, if we want spiritual knowledge... There are certain things that have to be done and done in a repetitious way over and over and over again. That person who is preparing himself to be a winning athlete has certain exercises he does and he does them repetitively over and over and over and over again. And he builds up the spiritual muscles and the spiritual stamina. 
You say, well, how can I know how to do those things? Well, for me, and I just offer this as a a suggestion, read uh, Christian biography. I'm a great fan of Christian biography. And pick up the biography of uh, men like David Livingstone or men like uh, C.T. Studd or J. Hudson Taylor. And and there are many others. There are even more modern-day Christians that I can mention. And uh, men and women who's Fanny Crosby that we were singing about, talking about just a moment ago. We, We all have some spiritual heroes from the past and maybe even in contemporary times, men and women who seem to stand head and shoulders above, strong in their faith and, and impacting in their lives. And we ask, how did they get there? How did they become that kind of Christian? What, what are the traits in their lives? What do they do that produces this kind of life? It's good to do that and to see what they do. And uh, we're surrounded, as we just read from Hebrews 12, by uh, a great host of witnesses who have gone on before us, who lived that life. Read Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter right before chapter 12, and see that list of those who lived by faith and the specific impact they had on the world in which they lived. They had certain disciplines. They exercised certain things. So we read these testimonies and these biographies. But I want us to read a little bit from the biography of the Apostle Paul and see what he did. Turn to Philippians chapter 3 and verses 10 through 14. Philippians 3, 10 through 14. And here you will see uh, just a little thumbnail sketch of of the kind of biography I'm talking about. And Paul uses to our blessing and benefit this specific example of the athletic uh, picture and arena. Uh, let's look at these words, and I, I'm going to read them and just comment briefly on them. Philippians 3 and verse 10. That I may know him. We break into the verse. That I may know him. That's important. Underscore that. If you mark in your Bible, if you make any notation, underscore that. That I may know him. This is a compelling, a compelling force in Paul's life. You say, what compelled this man to live as he lived, to die as he died, that I may know him, that I might have an intimate, personal knowledge of Christ, that I might have an experiential knowledge of Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, that's pretty powerful, the power of his resurrection. How can we know resurrection power? We can only know resurrection power when we are in fellowship, the fellowship of his sufferings, when we're conformed to his death. And Paul says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here we see in these two verses, 10 and 11, Paul's goal and his ambition that he might know Christ. Verse 12, we move on. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. I press on that athletic term. I'm pushing to the goal line. I'm, I'm pushing. I'm injured. I'm hurting. I'm lonely. I'm hungry. I'm all of these things, but I'm pressing on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. In other words, I'm reaching for the gold medal. I'm reaching for the gold medal, the prize of my faith, that well-done, good and faithful servant. So here we see Paul looking at his gold and seeing the gold medal waiting for him. The gold medal is the Lord himself and the joy of knowing him. 
Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, and that's a good phrase to underscore, one thing I do. One of the keys to Paul's success as a Christian was his single-mindedness, his single-mindedness. And I can guarantee you, because I know us well enough to know this, that all of us and each of us in this room tonight has a lot of stuff on our minds We're pulled in a multitude of directions. There are so many distractions. My friends and people who know me well laugh at me because I long long for the day that I could be, as it were, a vicar in a little English village visiting all my parishioners by bicycle or walking and just having a quiet little English village setting and... um, Not too much to worry about, but just reading and studying God's Word and preaching to my people and ministering to my people. Well, that's fantasy world. That's not going to happen. And uh, so we have a lot on our mind. But Paul, just think of what he had on his mind. But he said, I have not lost sight of the one thing, the one thing that I do. And he says, forgetting those things which are behind, those of you, and I know we have some coaches in the room, people that understand this much better than I do, but I, for just, just for the curiosity's sake this afternoon, I pull up some YouTubes of a 100-meter race, 1,500-meter uh, race, and a 500 uh, uh, and 1,000-meter race, and I watch just some clips from these men in their little skimpy running outfit, running these races, running for the... Do you know one thing that I observe? I don't think I saw one of them looking back. That's a fatal mistake. That's a fatal mistake. And uh, there, there can be any uh, matter of a multitude of, of things that can happen when a person's reaching for the goal and striving for the goal and becomes distracted with the preoccupation of who's breathing down my neck and turning around to see and suddenly the guy's not breathing down his neck he's running right past him Paul says I have one thing I have one thing I forget those things which are behind I press toward those things which are ahead and here we see as I've said the runner running for the finish line verse 14 still with the athletic uh, metaphor Paul, in his testimony, said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And here we see him straining. Do you remember that word agonize that I used a moment ago? Here we see Paul agonizing. If you were to watch some of the clips that I saw this afternoon, you would see those runners coming the closer they get to the finish line. When the cameras come in close up, you can see the very fiber of their muscle, the sinew of their muscle. Every strand of their muscle tone is showing as they're agonizing, striving, striving, striving. This is Paul, and that is the way he is in his Christian life. And I say that to us tonight, Paul says this to us tonight because I think we may be falling short in that area of our lives in terms of how desperately we seek to know him. Stuart Briscoe made a statement some years ago when I was a college student. I heard him say in a Bible conference uh, a statement that, that captured my attention and kept my attention. God meets man on the level of his desire. A man can have as much of God as he wants. Well, how much do we want? How much are we agonizing to know him? For the next moment or two, I want to take some information from an article 
that's not a Christian article. It's written by a woman who studied uh, Olympic athletes. Her name is Linda Durnell. And just to draw the parallel between uh, the Olympic athlete and what the scripture says as we've been looking at it tonight, she raised this question. What can we learn from Olympic athletes to turn our dreams into reality? What skills do Olympic athletes use to succeed? When I found this article and read this article, and I walked through the seven points that she makes, and I'm going to go quickly through these, I saw in each one of them a spiritual truth. She wasn't writing it for that purpose. That was not her aim. But I saw a parallel to spiritual life in each of these. The first one, and I'm going to just, I'll go through them Slow enough, if you want to try to jot them down, you can, but uh, I know CDs may be available. Uh, I'd always try to put something right in the middle of the sermon somebody will want, so, uh, so you can get it on CD if you miss it. Um, number one, unrelenting movement toward the goal. And this is the concept of massive action. What she says by this, in other words, you keep moving forward. You never lose sight of your goals. You keep moving forward. You keep moving forward. How many setbacks have you had today? How many setbacks did you have last week? How many setbacks have you had in the past months? And you feel in your Christian life sometimes you take two steps forward and one step backward and you lose sight of your goal. Unrelenting movement toward the goal. Number two, Olympic athletes are constantly learning. Well, we can see all kinds of parallels there. The Olympic athlete understands that that there's so much and so many... uh, Informations of precision information that that is needed to hone the skills and the strength and the ability to be a winner. Olympic athletes are constantly learning. Olympic athletes tap into the state of unlimited possibilities. In other words, they put aside negative thinking. And I know they have all kinds of training for this, some of which I might not advocate for you. But the idea here is that you separate yourself from the negative and you focus on the positive. I'll give you a good illustration of this. Do you remember when Jairus came to Jesus and said, My little girl is sick unto death. Will you come to my house? Jesus is dealing with a woman with the issue of blood. In the meantime, he's, he's on his way to Jairus' house, but this woman interrupts him briefly. And then a messenger comes to Jairus and said, uh, Never mind, your little girl is dead. Well, Jesus went on to the house. Do you remember the story I'm talking about? He went on to the house, and there the little girl was, 12 years old. She's dead. And Jesus went, uh, the, all of the wailers, the mourners, the, the culture and custom of that day, people were there almost immediately, professional mourners, professional wailers. And by that I mean that's what they did. They'd go around and weep and wail when somebody died. Well, Jesus said, here's what he did. He said, get everybody out of the house. I want everybody out of here. And I'm going to, I want you, Peter, you, James, and you, John, And you, mother, and you, father, come with me. We're going back into the house. Here's what Jesus did. He pulled out and sent away everybody who would doubt him, who would not believe in him, who would not accept his authority, who put put any seed of doubt in anybody's mind that he could perform a miracle. He said, out of the way. I don't need you. I need these five people of faith to come in and surround me because I'm going to wake her up and she's going to live. He surrounded himself with people of faith. And I want to say to you a common sense reality. 
is if you hang around negative people, you're going to become a negative person. If you hang around a doubting person, you're going to become a doubting person. If you hang around somebody that's always questioning their faith and questioning the viability of Jesus Christ, you're going to become that kind of person too. Separate yourself from the negative. Focus on the positive. But that's not positive thinking. That's not how I mean that. I mean surround yourself with people who can help you exercise your faith to get stronger and stronger and stronger. Not people who are going to be like a leech sucking the spiritual blood out of you. Amen? Some of you have some leeches. Olympic athletes, number four, make great sacrifices. When I hear about what time they get up, what time they go to bed, what time they eat, what they can't do, what they can do. When I was a kid, I thought, I want to be an Olympic athlete, and I found out what it took to make one, and I said, forget it. They make great sacrifices. Olympic athletes have... Uh, an extensive support system. They have coaches, they have trainers, they have family, they have fans. Could I remind you something, brothers and sisters? As a child of God, you have a tremendous support system. Look to your left, look to your right, look behind you, look in front of you, look around. You have a family of God that is your support system. Olympic athletes are always working on the next game plan. In other words, like Paul had said previously, I have not apprehended, I have not attained, I have not arrived. I'm keeping on, keeping on, because even when I hit one high plane, there's another higher plane, and when I get there, there's still another higher plane. And like the pyramid, here we go, and we only reach the top when we're in heaven So there's no room to sit down on the sideline and say, I'm just going to watch the rest of the game from this point on. No, stay in the game. Number seven, everyone has potential. Now, uh, and that has spiritual parallels too. Okay, let's move to point number two. Point number one is that to become a winning Christian, you must exercise. Point number two, to become a winning Christian requires obeying the rules. I don't need to talk about this a long time because each of you have a rule book in your hand. Here it is, the Word of God. And God gives us the the game plan. He gives us the guidelines. He gives us the rule book. The problem that some of us have is that we want to be winners, but we don't want to play by the rules. We want shortcuts. We want it made easy. Uh, We don't like the demands of the rules. Rules can be tough. Rules can be tough. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we're living in a culture that is more and more and more relaxing the rules in every aspect of life. You know what happens when rules are gone? Chaos. What happens? Have you ever watched a football game? And I, I mean, even to ask such a question is silly. Sure you have. Some of you are addicted to it. <laughs> you watch football. You watch basketball. You watch athletic events. And that's wonderful. But there's always somebody involved in those. They're called referees and umpires. And they have unusual authority to stop a game just like that. They blow the whistle. They can put you out of the game or they can keep you in the game or they can alter the game because they're keeping an eye on the rules. Need I remind us tonight that we have a Savior who is keeping an eye on the rules and we need to be living by the rules now, it's, a, it's, a, it's an embarrassment to me to think that we live in a society that will hold a higher standard for rule-keeping 
uh, in certain aspects of life uh, outside our Christian faith than we have in our Christian faith. I'm going to give two examples, and they both come from the golfing world because this, this seems, you know, we still call that the gentleman's sport, and I hope it remains that way. I've seen a little tarnish on it here and there, but it's always been known as the gentleman's sport. My mentor, Dr. Stephen Olford, loved uh, Bernhard Langer. Dr. Olford was the C, uh, PGA chaplain for many years uh, when he was pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City and beyond that. He was, he was an Englishman, and his wife was an Irish lady, and they, were, uh, they had golf in their DNA, and they loved to play golf. So he followed golf. He loved golf. And I heard Dr. Olford tell this story many times about Bernhard Langer uh, on the, he, he was leading the pack. He was going to win the tournament. And he hit a ball into shallow water. And uh, he went down and examined the situation and decided he would just uh, take, a, take a shot and bring the ball out of the water. He felt like he could do that. And um, he, uh, he did. He, uh, he, he found his, his footing uh, in, in just a few inches of water, but he found his footing and he made a stroke, and the, water, the ball came right up out of the water and found a safe place on dry ground. And he went on. He went on to, to continue to lead the tournament. But not too long uh, uh, further into the game, uh, a spectator watching by television called and said, uh, when the camera zoomed in on Bernhard Langer's feet, uh, I noticed that he shifted an impediment from underneath his foot and moved it away uh, in order to reposition his foot. Now, I can imagine what he did when he was standing on a rock. Have you ever had a pebble or a small rock under your foot and you t- tend to want to... I'm sure we've all been in that position that Bernhard Langer was in. But what happened was not only did he lose that stroke... And that part of the game, he lost the tournament. He did, it was an infraction of rules that caused him to lose the tournament. I found another story is quite remarkable from some years back in 1987. And I, I, I'm still trying to scratch my head on this one. But Greg Stadler was playing in the Andy Williams Open. He had a winning score of 270. And he was on his way to win the tournament. It was raining. It was a bad day. He hit a a ball into the rough. When he went to the ball to bring it back into the fairway, he realized that he was going to have to get down on one knee to bring the ball back into the fairway. And because the ground was wet and muddy from the rain, he took a golf towel, put it on the ground, put his knee on the towel and hit the ball and made a remarkable shot, bringing it out of the rough, the extreme rough, back into the fairway. Again, someone else watching by television called in and said, you can't put a towel on the ground to put your knee on because it's an improvement of your stance for uh, hitting the ball. And he lost the tournament and lost several thousand dollars of winning prize in the meantime. You say, why do you tell those stories? Because those kind of rules are applied in many aspects of life, not just in the athletic arena where rules have to be kept or you get fired or rules have to be kept or you you receive a severe reprimand. And how is it that we think we can live the Christian life without keeping the rules that God has put before us? We cannot. We must be rule-keeping Christians. Do I get an amen on that? Well, let's do one more thing, and then we will be uh, at the conclusion. The third thing that we're talking about is a victorious Christian, a winning Christian, uh, must 
exercise self-control. This is an important part. And by the way, if I could just say this before it leaves my mind, this is an aspect of our faith and our testimony that will really make a difference in the workplace where you live and your home because your self-control and your temperament is one thing that will give you away. I mean, you can say nice things and you can go to church on Sunday and you can sing the hymns, you can even preach the sermons and you can do all of that. But if you've got a stinky self-temperament, if if you're temperamental and not self-controlled, you'll find yourself offending people and insulting people and hurting people. You may not even be aware of it because you're just kind of doing things the way you want to do things and not thinking about the consequences. And I'll read 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 26 to give a biblical basis for that statement. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Listen to the words of Paul. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in a way that you may obtain it, And everyone who competes for the prize is what? Temperate. That word means self-controlled. And Paul says, in all things, you're temperate and you're self-controlled in all things. And now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Their motive is like the Olympian, the gold medal. But we, for an imperishable crown... Therefore I run thus not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body... And bring it under subjection, as we were reading a moment ago. But back to this verse here where he says, Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. Write this statement down. Discipline, not desire, determines destiny. And if you want to be a biblical Christian, it's not going to be simply by wishing and wanting and desiring to be one. It's going to be when you begin to employ and to exercise the principles that produce such a life. The winning Christian life requires discipline. Discipline. Amen? Amen. Well, I pray this picture of the athlete sticks in our minds for a little while anyway. Let's stand as we pray together.